0: reading from God's word out of the book of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So uh, yesterday, my family and I were driving home from an impromptu uh, vacation from uh, Palm Springs. Uh, Kind of poor timing for that, right? Uh, it actually wasn't too bad because the, the heat was a lot more dry out there. but on the drive back, uh, my kids were in the, in the back seat uh, watching Finding Nemo on, uh, on, on our DVD player in our minivan. Uh, now, if you know how these DVD players work in the minivans, you know that like if you're sitting in the front, Like, you can't see the movie, right? Like, they don't put it on the screen there for you, for your safety, uh, for your uh, protection. Uh, And so, uh, like, everyone in the second and third and however many rows you got going on, they can see the DVD, but you can't. But I could hear the DVD, right? Now, I don't know if uh, you guys are familiar uh, with the great epic story of Finding Nemo, but basically this uh, clownfish by the name of Marlin, he loses his son, uh, and he obviously is really upset over that, over losing his son. And he goes on the adventure of a lifetime, just swimming across ocean to ocean, uh, which sounds like an adventure that would be a, like, really great right now, right? But like, he, he, he goes from ocean to ocean uh, trying to find his son, Nemo, hence finding Nemo. Now, uh, this movie is going on, and I couldn't see the movie, but man, like I, I haven't seen it in like years, and I was like just just really gripped by uh, the story as I'm just hearing things go by. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm like my my kids are falling asleep in the back, and I'm just like, hey, Geneva, like wake up! Like, what what are they in the whale right now? Like, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember like what's going on just from what I'm I'm hearing, and it, and and it struck me uh, how drawn we are to like a good rescue story, right? We're drawn to a good rescue story. You cannot love a good rescue story. Some of the best stories, the most epic stories that we like to revisit again and again are rescue stories, right? Saving Private Ryan, the Star Wars saga, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, if we want to stick with Pixar, The Incredibles, Toy Story 1 through 4, right? Like. Don't you love a good rescue story? The epic rescue story is hardwired into our psyche. It's hardwired into what it means to be human. That's why we cheer for the first responders when they enter a dangerous situation and come out with all the people safe, right? That's why we cheer when the child is taken out of a hopeless reality and adopted into a new life with a new family. It's why we cheer when the dragon is slayed and the princess gets saved. The reason we love these stories so much, the reason that they warm our hearts is because rescue story is part of the heart of God and since we're made in his image and likeness that's what the Bible says as human beings made in his image and image and likeness his epic rescue story echoes in our hearts and has for generations his rescue story is the truest of all rescue stories. It's the story of the Bible, and it's the most epic rescue story that's ever been told. Now, if you want to read the Bible's rescue story, I recommend you start in Genesis and go all the way to Revelation. But if you want one verse to start with, there's probably no better verse than John 3.16. Right? Right? John 3.16 is perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible. You see it uh, on, 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 you know, these placard signs and poster boards uh, at, at football games and sports games. You guys remember that, sports, right? <laughs> uh, you see someone has John 3.16 like up on, on a big poster board. Uh, it's because John 16 summarizes the doctrines of the gospel uh, so compactly in one verse. So what I want to do is just spend the next few minutes teasing that out. Uh, And as I do, I want you to consider how this verse, this rescue story is our story. It's the human story. As Jack Pearson might say, this is us, right? this verse is us. So John three sixteen says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now let's tease that apart. First, I want you to see at the very beginning of the verse, we're struck with the reality of a creator. It says right there uh, at the beginning of verse 16, for God, for God. Now we need to Ask ourselves, when we come across that phrase, for God, we need to ask ourselves, who is this God? Who is this God? You see, my concern is that we are so familiar with this word God that we don't really think about who this God is. Even our greatest thoughts of God pale in comparison to His true nature, to who He truly is. This is why Ray Ortland says that not one of us has ever had a single thought about God that was fully fair to the magnitude of who he really is. I love that. So I want you to consider this morning, what is it that you think about God? Where do you get your ideas about him? Maybe your upbringing, uh, maybe it's, it's colored by your personality or your relationship with your, your parents. The fact is, when we read the scriptures, what we find is our views of God are often too small. The Bible says that there is a creator and that all else is creation. This is the most fundamental truth of reality. There's a lot of people that might say, no, the most fundamental truth about reality is that there is a God who loves us. No, and that's true and wonderful and beautiful, but even before that, We need to recognize that God is a creator and that all else is creation. God isn't just the greatest of all characters in a grand epic story. He's the author of the story. He's ontologically different, as philosophers might say, or uh, to simplify it, he's categorically different. He's a category, a whole other category in and of himself that nothing else and no one else falls under. And so if we want to understand the weight and the magnitude of the Bible's rescue story, we need to start here with the bigness of God, the, the awesomeness of God and all that He is. The Bible calls this the fear of the Lord. And it says that this fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, if you want to know anything of true wisdom, if you want any type of biblical wisdom, then you need to start with a massive view of God. Verse 16 of John 3 continues, and it says that this God, he so loved the world. Now that word so communicates something more about our God. Not only is he this great creator, but he's an intense lover. That word so communicates the intensity of his love. Some translations, like the Christian Standard Bible, I love the way that, that they articulate this. It says, for God loved the world in this way. Right? So how did he love the world? Not meagerly, but massively. Massively. First John tells us that God is love. He loves us not because we're so lovable. He loves us in spite of how unlovable we can be. He loves us just because He is love. We don't persuade Him to love us. He just is love. You see, when God created the universe out of nothing, He looked at His creation and called it good. And then when he created his creatures, uh, uh, humans above all, uh, he created us in his image and likeness. He gave us a special place in his created order. Now, knowing that there is a creator who calls his creation good and who so loves the world, knowing this helps us make sense of creation's purpose and it helps us make sense of our life's purpose too. You see, because without the truth of a real and glorious creator, we would have no expectations for what we could call good, or what we could call true or beautiful in this world. If there was no creator, then the universe has no purpose. If there was no creator, we could not in any meaningful sense in any persuasive sense, say that the universe has purpose. It's just a collection of senseless atoms whizzing through time and space, only to fade away without any point or without any reason. But God, God had a purpose for creation. And for us, his prized creatures made in his image. His purpose from the beginning was for him to not only be our creator God, but for us to be his redeemed people. His purpose was not just for him to be our God, but for us to be his people. And that is why uh, John 3.16 says, He gave his only Son. Read that with me. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Now, why was the son needed? Why did God need to give his son for us? And this is point number two. It's because of the tragedy of a curse. The tragedy of a curse. You see, at humanity's very beginning, in the first chapters of the Bible, we read that our first parents, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God and they fell into sin. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through that sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, Adam and Eve ushered sin into the world, but it's just as good as though you and I sinned as well. Right? We're one human race. And you know what the result of sin on the human heart in the world is? It's that now everything gets sort of flipped on its head. It re- sin reverses the intended purpose that God created uh, the universe for and that God created people for. And so now the world is cursed because of sin. That is exactly why we can look around at the world with, uh, uh, with corruption in, in, in nations, corruption in our hearts, right? Uh, the secret thoughts that many of us are ashamed of, right? Uh, the, the reality of sin and death and disease and pandemics and cancer. It's why we look around and see all these things and we say, this is not how things are supposed to be, right? It pains us. It grieves us that these things exist because there's something in us that knows this isn't right. Things shouldn't be this way. There shouldn't be suffering. There shouldn't be pain. There shouldn't be evil, that's what sin brought into the world. And look, the curse of sin is sobering to us. It tells us personally, it pe- like the curse of sin on a wor- world uh, uh, should tell us much more than just looking out there saying, man, things are awful. It should cause us to sort of introspectively look inward and say, hey, things can be kind of messed up in here too. The curse of sin soberly tells us that you and I are fundamentally rebels in need of rescue. We are fundamentally sinners in need of grace. We sin every day in thought, in word, in deed. We worship things other than God. We worship money, sex, power, comfort, convenience, politics, possessions, all those things more than we worship God. We love people and things more than the one who made us and gave us those things. And because God is good and true and just, the penalty for this cosmic rebellion is his righteous wrath. Now, if you think that's unfair, then you don't really understand what we first talked about, the magnitude of our God. And you don't understand that to find purpose and meaning in anything other than Him is not only uh, 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 is, is not only cosmic rebellion, but it's the worst thing for our souls. Now look, there are people that say, "See, this is the thing I don't like about Christian doctrine. This is the thing I don't like about Christian teachings. Like, I don't like uh, I don't like the idea of hell." Now let me just say, you shouldn't. That's kind of the point, right? That's kind of the point. But look, preachers don't like to talk about this reality these days, but it is so important. They say, we don't want to talk about that because it's not loving. But look, if this is a true reality, then the most loving thing you can do is just to to own the reality of this truth. Jesus himself, the most loving, respected, admired man in all of history, Jesus speaks of heaven and hell more than anyone else in all the scriptures. It's described in the Bible as a place of weeping, of wailing, of gnashing of teeth, of a lake of fire. You thought today was unbearably hot? Try tubing in a lake of fire. Eternity in hell will make the year 2020 look like a cakewalk. That's why the Bible calls His wrath, God's wrath, righteous. It's a righteous wrath. It's a good wrath. It's a just wrath. Because all that's evil, all that's bad, all that's wrong needs to be dealt with. We're really quick to say, I mean, cancel culture is big this day, right? When we even perceive wrongness in someone else, there might not even be a real wrongness there. When we perceive wrongness, we want that to be dealt with. We want that person to be canceled, unless it's us, right? We're blind to the wrongness of our own nature. But the Bible tells us that sin is a reality, and hell and the righteous wrath of God is a reality that comes with us. And so the question is for us, where's the good news in that? Where's the good news? I thought Christianity was about good news. The good news is what we read here in John three sixteen, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. How do we get that? How do we get that good news? Through the son that God gave. And this is where we get to point number three, where we look at the scandal of the cross. The scandal of the cross. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he died there in our place and for our sins. It's popular for some to say, you want to know how much Jesus loves you? He loves you this much. That he, and then they you know, open up their arms and say, God loved you this much that he was willing to die for you. And there is absolutely a sense in which that's true. But the cross wasn't just to show us how much God loved us. There was a myriad of ways that God could have shown with great uh, amazement, with great uh, fanfare, how much he loves us. But the reason it required a cross is because Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God so that we might be reconciled to God. The Bible calls this Propitiation. Romans 3, it says that Jesus was a propitiation for our sins. It's a beautiful word at the heart of the gospel, but it's one that uh, we don't visit uh, often enough uh, in the the modern faith. But propitiation can be defined as a wrath-satisfying sacrifice or a wrath removing sacrifice. And so to say that Jesus is a propitiation for our sins is to say that He stood in our place and so absorbed the judgment that we otherwise deserve, He absorbed it on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to. He endured hell in a moment so that we wouldn't have to endure hell for an eternity. This is why God gave his only son. It's because in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we, can no, we no longer have to perish. God forgives us not because of our good works, but because of the sacrifice of his son on the cross. That's why we call this a scandal. The cross is a scandal. The only perfect person, the only sinless one, Endured punishment for our sin. And through his death and by his resurrection, Jesus demonstrated that he is truly God and that he is Lord over all things. He showed that even death could be conquered. This leads us into the next chapter of the story, which is the glory of recreation not only are we saved from something, but we're brought into something beautiful, something that lasts. The Bible says that through the gospel, God is making a new people and He's preparing for us a new place. Revelation 12, 21, one of the last verses of the Bible, it says that he who is seated on the throne, this is Jesus in the future, he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. You see, God makes us new creations in Christ so that we die to our old sinful ways and can learn to walk in new ways, learn to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Through Jesus, God has already begun to exercise his reign right here in earth. He created the church. And look, as his church, as his people, we are now his ambassadors, Listen, eternal life for the Christian doesn't start after you die. Eternal life starts right now. If you're a follower of Jesus, your eternal life starts right now. Those who are followers of Jesus are to be agents of change, of hope, of renewal. They're to be lights that push back the darkness in the world. And at the end of history, the Bible tells us that God will finish this work of recreation and that those who have not received Christ will be eternally punished through his righteous wrath for their sins. But those who belong to Christ will live forever in a new paradise where we'll be free from all suffering, all evil, all sin, and we'll enjoy God forever. Amen? And so look, friends, we are saved by God and we are saved for God. This is why Jonah says salvation is of the Lord. It's all him. It's all for him. It's all by him. It's all through Jesus. Through Jesus, we're saved from death to life. We're saved from the old nature to the new nature from the identity of sinner to the identity of saints. We're saved from Satan and his demons to being filled with the Holy Spirit. We're saved from being children of wrath to being sons and daughters of the living God. Now, how does this happen? We read, there, we read it in our assurance of grace this morning in Ephesians two, that God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He does this by grace. You don't have to bring anything to the throne of grace other than your need for it. That's good news. And it leads us to our last point which is now the call to commitment. As we read, those who trust in Jesus will be forgiven and they'll be made new. In Acts two, after Jesus ascended back to heaven, there's this scene where the apostle Peter is preaching the gospel uh, to a whole host of people, just crowds have gathered. The uh, The first church gathering after Jesus ascended to heaven. And Peter preaches the gospel uh, in such power that in Acts 2.37, it says that when the crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they all said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, they said, brothers, what is it that we shall do? In other words, what do we have to do to be saved? We, We want salvation, the salvation that you speak of. What shall we do? How can we be saved? And Peter responds and says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for their forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what baptism is. Find yourself in Him. Just have faith in Him. Turn from your old ways and turn to Him. You see, being a Christian means we renounce our old ways of thinking and living, and that we now trust Christ alone as our Savior. We obey Him as Lord, and we love Him as our greatest treasure. The Greek text of John 3.16 literally says, whoever believes into Him. is kind of a way that you could uh, translate that. Not just whoever believes in Him, but whoever believes into Him is a better uh, translation of the Greek there. Whoever believes into Him should not perish. What that tells us is that real faith takes us into Jesus. It's not enough to have just a faith that like you check off a, a connect card, right? I'm accepting Christ and then, and then uh, there, there's just no transformation, right? It's not enough to where it's like you get baptized and you're like, cool, I checked that off the box and then yeah, you're, you're on to the next thing. No, real faith takes us into jesus it moves us from self-centeredness into christ-centeredness and he becomes our everything he becomes our all he becomes our new sort of sacred center and we happily lose ourselves in him because he is everything i love the way that the lutheran theologian gerard ford describes just the the freeness of the gospel he's He kind of says this in a cheeky way. He says, We are justified freely for Christ's sake by faith without the exertion of our own strength, gaining of merit, or doing of works. To the age old question, What shall I do to be saved? The confessional, in other words, the historic Christian answer is shocking. Nothing. Just be still. Shut up and listen for once in your life to what God the Almighty Creator and Redeemer is saying to His world and to you in the death and resurrection of His Son. Just listen and believe. What does God care about most? It's not the sins we've committed or the sins we haven't committed. It's not that He doesn't care about those, but it's not what He cares about most. What He cares about most is not... Our sins, it's not how we compare ourselves to others, but it's how united we are with His Son in faith. And so, look, my closing question for you is Do you believe in this Jesus? Do you believe? Do you believe in Him? Do you love Him? Do you belong to Him? And look, if not, this is where you give yourself to Christ, right? Whether you're here in person or streaming online, this is where you give yourself to Christ. That's what repentance and faith is. It's you give your life over to him. Your sin, your life, your future, you give it over to him. And if you do know Christ, you know that you then just know that you have been saved, rescued, transformed by God to know him and enjoy him forever and to make Him known so that others might come to know that same joy too. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx. .church Thanks again for listening.